Good evening. I really am glad to be able to stand up here tonight. Um, I feel a lot of love from this congregation, and I thank you all for that. There was a young man about my age who had a bit of a, uh, a, a difficult problem that he had to work with. He had a few cousins that were his age or a little bit older, and one by one they were getting married. And when he would go to, uh, to their marriage, his aunts and his uncles and his grandparents would come up to him and they would nudge him or they would poke him and they would say, you're next, right? And uh, this was sort of uncomfortable for him, and he felt a little bit of pressure, and he wondered what he could do to, uh, to get them to quit saying this. And so finally he found something that worked. The next time that someone died in their family, at the funeral, he would walk up to them, and he would nudge them and poke them, and he would say, you're next, right? <laughs> and so that, that got them to stop that. Um, we are talking about death tonight, about the brevity of life, so... That may be the only humor you get from me, you know. There's only so many hilarious death jokes out there, so. Um, We all have death in common, unless the Lord comes back uh, very soon. It's something that we'll all have to face. Um, Whether we're young or old, male, female, uh, whatever occupation has been, we know that sooner or later this day is going to come for us. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and is appointed for all men once to die, and then the judgment. And as a matter of fact, uh, the fact that you are alive tonight puts you in the minority of people who have ever lived. About 90% of everyone who has ever lived is dead. So if we were to take 10 people from human history, you would be the one in that group that still has choices left to make, um, that still has decisions that can go one way or the other. Um, So I think we should feel a little bit lucky and make the most of this moment while we still have it. Um, There was a man who lived in the 1800s named Henry David Thoreau, and uh, many consider him to have been a brilliant man. He he went to Harvard, and I'm not here tonight to talk about uh, his ideas, but there's one thing that he did that really interests me. His life didn't feel... To him as if he was accomplishing very much and he was feeling discontented and one day uh, without a whole lot of planning Henry David Thoreau went off into the woods for two and a half years to live on his own he left his family and his his house his belongings and uh, he just wrote a book and he the reason he said that he did that he said this he said I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. And that's really our objective tonight, is to equip ourselves with biblical knowledge that can help us to live deliberately, to face the essential facts of life, to look at our own death and to be okay with that, and to see if life has something to teach us and not to come to the end of our lives and discover that we have not lived, or that we have not lived the way that we wish that we had. You know, there's a difference in really knowing something and, and just saying you know it. Um, I can remember when I was young how I felt when I realized that I was going to see Judgment Day. I had always envisioned other people on Judgment Day, and it just occurred to me, wait a minute, what is that going to look like? Or what's it going to be like on Judgment Day? I realized for the first time that I'm going to be there 
that literally the fact that I'm alive means that I have a soul that is going to go on into eternity and that's such a possession to, to be guarded. And so I think this isn't something we can say, oh, I know I'm going to die and so there's no reason to talk about it anymore. It's something we develop. It's a mindset that we learn to have. And it's not necessarily a depressing mindset. This is actually very liberating, and I hope as we get into it, uh, you will see the joy and, and the positive aspects of coming to understand this. You know, there's just something about being familiar with the truth that enables us to make wise decisions. And the 90th Psalm draws for us that, that parallel between familiarity with the truth and wisdom. In the 90th Psalm, we are taught to number our days. And this is what Psalm 90 says, beginning in verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. There is this set amount of time, normally 70 or 80 years, sometimes 90 or 100 um, that we have on this earth. And then that's it. And I can remember when I was five, I thought that a 10-year-old was just a big kid, you know, and uh, they had seen so much more than me. And then when I was 10, a 20-year-old was just a person who had seen the world, who had everything figured out, who was so much cooler than I was. Um, and now I'm almost 20, and I look at a lot of you who are 40, 50, 60, and, you know, I think you're ancient, right? But when I get to be your age, and when I get to be older and older, if I'm lucky enough uh, to, to become an old man, I know I'll look back and see that it's passed by so fast um, that it just picks up steam as it, as it keeps going. And we'll continue in verse 11 now of the 90th Psalm. It says, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? And then verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There's two things I think we can notice about this verse tonight. One, he says, teach us to number our days. It's a process. It's something that we build into our mindset. Like, like I said, it's one thing to know something, but it's another to really know it, to let it affect your decision-making, to become familiar with this idea that we are going to die. And, and of course, one day we'll be forced to face that reality. But let's begin facing it now and begin making choices with that in mind. Uh, so allow God to teach you. Maybe this is something to pray about, to meditate on, um, to really think seriously about. And then we read, uh, if we read over 12 again, it says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom or that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's a cause and effect here. When you live with an understanding that your time on earth is short, you begin making wiser decisions and you begin seeing more clearly the right path to take. We gain wisdom by becoming familiar with this truth. And so with that in mind, there's three more passages that I want to take us to tonight that will teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The first one is in James chapter 4. James chapter 4 deals with making plans for our lives. 
We'll begin in James 4.13. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, if we stop right there, um, it sounds like a decent uh, summation of a person like me, maybe like you. Um, I say, well, I'm going to go do an internship in Texas, and I'll make X amount of dollars, and then I'll come back here, and I'll go to Freed, and then I'll get another internship later, and I'm going to be a preacher and be married and have kids, and some of us have it all planned out down to the white picket fence. And now God isn't teaching us not to plan But he has a couple warnings in mind that he gives us in the following verses. So in verse 14, we have this first warning. He says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears a little while and then vanishes away. The first thing we need to bear in mind when we're making these plans is that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Don't take life for granted. In other words, if there's something that I don't want to die having left undone, then why put it off till tomorrow? I mean, maybe someone here is saying, well, I've thought about giving my life to to Christ and maybe I'll do that someday. Or I've thought about addressing this particular problem in my life. I've thought about whatever it is. There's a person that I need to talk to. There's a person that I need to forgive. But I'll do that later. If this is something that you are okay with dying, having left undone, then, then leave it undone for now. But if this is something that you would want to have done if you were going to die tomorrow, then don't take life for granted because our souls are not something to be played with. They're not something to risk at, for any reason. And so if we continue here in James chapter 14, he says in 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now that's pretty harsh. Um, Say what we're doing is evil. He says you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this. That is, when we plan out our lives, do we ever stop and ask God how he feels about our plans? Or do we ever consider that maybe he has different plans than we have in mind? Uh, if, if God puts something in your path to bring you another way than what you had intended, are you willing to follow him? It tells us that if we're living our lives as if God had no will, as if it's all up to us to make all our plans, and we don't need to worry about what he wants us to do, then we're boasting and arrogance, and this is evil. And so when we look at the shortness of our lives, we only have so long to do what God has placed us here to do. And so it puts a special emphasis on his will and, and not just living as if the only will there is is our own. Now with that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is in Luke 16, by the way, and you might want to read that sometime, uh, did you ever notice the ways in which the mindset of the rich man di- changed after he died? That is, uh, before the rich man died, we didn't see any mention of uh, any concerns that he had for his family or for himself. He didn't seem very concerned about Lazarus, who was outside his gates, or about the scriptures. None of these things uh, are mentioned in the summary of his life. Now, when he died, 
he began focusing a lot on Lazarus. He cared a lot more about Lazarus. Um, and he was in torment and he was wishing that he had obeyed the scriptures. You remember, he asked that Lazarus would be sent to his family to evangelize them. And so he was worried more about his family then than he had ever been in his lifetime. And all of these things changed in his mindset. And I, and I wonder, I think that all of us will see our lives in a different way after we die, that a new light will be shed on them. But I hope that we can diminish the contrast that we will find then. I hope that we would be embarrassed now about ways that we need to change instead of being embarrassed then. There's plenty of reasons uh, for me to, to be embarrassed about different things and for you for different things. Are we being less evangelistic than we should be? Do we really care about other souls? Are we being less benevolent than we should be? Um, are we serious about doing the Lord's will? If we need to be embarrassed about those things, much better to be embarrassed about them now than the day that you die. And so with that in mind, let's look in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. It says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, we come back to this idea of doing the Lord's will and allowing a light to shine on our lives that reveals them the way they ought to be revealed when lined up against the scriptures. And that is not that, that we are truly expecting to be perfect people, but that we are not uh, content to compare ourselves with anything less. And as we continue reading, uh, he says in verse 11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. So you have this concept in mind, and look how it's tied to verse 14. He says, For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, for Christ will shine on you. He's telling us to wake up. We have this window of time here on earth, and we don't want to look back a thousand years from now on this little time and say, Why didn't I live that differently? Why didn't I realize the opportunity that I had? He's, he's telling us to wake up. And in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, we come back to the will of the Lord. And I find lately, when I'm reading the Bible, I read so much about doing the Lord's will. There's a real focus there. Um, we read in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never d knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And what was that distinguishing factor that sent some of them away? They hadn't done the Lord's will. And then we read in James two nineteen and 20. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And so we see again this focus on living our lives for him and not just worshiping him 
with our voices only, but with our entire lives. And 1 John chapter 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. And I know for me sometimes uh, it just seems like, well, I want to do the Lord's will, but I just don't see any opportunities right now to do anything that he wants me to. But I think if we can build this mindset into our lives of how short our lives are and that we are here for a purpose, we will be ready when that time comes. Um, when we meet someone on the street, when we have a visitor uh, here at our church, whatever the situation may be, to take advantage of that and not to shrink back, but to know that this is an important time for us. And so, with all of that in mind, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. As I said, this is not uh, meant to be a depressing message or a message that, you know, oh, we're always failing and just a, a something that gets us down. You know, it can be really liberating to understand that we're not going to be here forever. And it can change our lives in positive ways. And it teaches us to focus on the things that are really important. And Isaiah 40 really distinguishes for us uh, between things that aren't going to be important when we die and things that are still going to be important and things that we can enjoy both now and forever. Isaiah 40, verse 6, says this. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flowers of the field. So we have the flesh and its loveliness. Our bodies, uh, our houses, boats, cars, our hobbies, you know, our our bicycles and our golf sets, our musical instruments, uh, whatever it is, these things on their own are not important unless they have some sort of spiritual implication. And certainly they can be used in ways that will further spiritual causes. But the flesh and its loveliness, he says, are are nothing. And in verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. If you want to know what to devote your life to, devote it to the God who blows all that away just with his breath. Just breathing on this existence melts it all away. That's the God that we can serve, and the things that he promises us will always last. And then uh, we read... In verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, there are promises that we have in his word. And if we subscribe to the faith that the Bible develops, and if we truly believe it, we have something very beautiful to hold on to. And we have something life-changing because we have promises that we know will last forever. And I've got a couple of these promises here. One is... From Matthew six nineteen through 21 He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He tells us about a place where there's no moth, no rust, no thieves, where the things that you have last forever, where the pleasures that you receive are not short-lived. And all of the good deeds that we do, the service that we do towards others, the right decisions that we finally decide to make are building for us some, some place there that is going to last forever. And he told his disciples in John 14, 1-3, he said, Do not let your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so he, he gives us these promises that mean so much to, to those who truly believe them. And sometimes my faith is weak, and maybe sometimes all of our faith is weak, that idea of truly knowing something and not just saying that we know it. But the more we know these truths, the more liberated we become. The more we know how short our lives are, the more freely we can live every day to the fullest and want to make the most of what we're given. And the more we see heaven in front of us, the more we will want to invest in that and and be filled with joy in that. So I just want to close uh, with a thought about that sort of liberation that these ideas can have on us. How do you scare a person who honestly believes these things? Um, there was a play written in the 1920s, and I haven't seen it or read it, but I know the basic premise, and it's, it's kind of eye-opening to me. It's called Lazarus Laughed. And uh, basically the premise of it is that this is the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. And in the play, after he is raised from the dead, uh, he had expected just to find darkness or, or a sorrowful place, but instead uh, he had gone to a place of just laughter, the laughter of the gods it was described as, and it was you know, a pleasant place. And throughout the rest of the play, he goes through all kinds of trials and temptations and terrible situations, and yet he's laughing through all of it. And there's this scene where the, the leader of the time, Caligula, is so mad at Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, if you don't stop laughing, I'm going to kill you. And of course, Lazarus knows what it's like to die, And he knows the man who can let him out of it. And he knows that Jesus is going to be there for him. And so he just laughs at Caligula. And uh, Caligula says, if you don't stop laughing, I'm going to kill you while I'm persecuting and killing all these other Christians. And he just doubles over in laughter and he looks up and he says, Caligula, have you not heard? Death is dead. And to have that kind of faith, which Lazarus would clearly have had because he had seen it firsthand can have an effect on us that rids us of the fear of death and liberates us to live life to the fullest and that encourages us to be ready for the opportunities when they come our way. So I don't think this is a bleak or depressing topic. Uh, Even if it were, we would have to face it, but I think it's a liberating one. And we open with Hebrews 9.27, which says, It's appointed for all men once to die and then the judgment. And I'd just like to close with Hebrews 9.28. It says, So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So if tonight uh, you want to put on Christ in baptism for the remission of your sins, knowing that you can do that before it's too late, or if you are a believing Christian who just wants to come back to Christ who has something that they need to face up to, or who just wants our prayers for any reason, for wisdom, for strength, um, who wants to begin living every day to the fullest and looking forward to heaven, then you can come as we stand and sing the invitation song.